Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, you're going to want to have your Bibles in front of you this morning. And please stand for the reading of God's word in Exodus 32. And we're going to begin in verse 15 and go down to verse 24. Listen to God's word. When then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. But they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Christian author Philip Ryken uh, tells a story about when he was a child growing up, someone had given him a record uh, of Bible sounds. A record of Bible sounds. It was an album full of Bible sounds. And the album contained a series of riddles where you would listen to a track and you had to guess what Bible story it was referring to. So there would be all these sound effects and you had to guess which Bible story is it pointing to. So for example, you'd hear a crackling fire and then a rooster that crows three times and a man sobbing. And of course, that's an easy one. We know that that's Peter's denial of Jesus. And certainly when it comes to great sounds in the Bible, there are many of them. The trumpets and shouts of Israel before the walls of Jericho. The wings of the cherubim in Ezekiel. Or there's the cry of Christ on the cross. Or the trumpet that sounds before Jesus' second return. And in our passage this morning, we encounter one of the strangest sounds in the Bible. Moses and Joshua heard it as they came back down the mountain 
And it was such a strange sound that Joshua wasn't even sure what he was listening to. But it didn't take long for Moses to identify it. It was the sound of sinful singing. We are in Exodus 32, verses 15 through 24, and you're going to want to open your Bibles there if you haven't, and have it in front of you, to Exodus 32, 15. And you'll recall from the previous weeks in Exodus that Moses has been on Mount Sinai receiving instructions from the Lord. But the people grew antsy. They grew impatient with Moses being gone so long, and so they said, to Aaron, make us this golden calf. Make us, make us a God that we might worship. And Aaron says, give me your gold. And he shapes and fashions a golden calf for them to worship. All of this kindled the Lord's anger. Their sin, their faithlessness, God in righteous anger, as we saw last week, was ready to wipe out Israel and start all over with Moses, but he doesn't because Moses prayed. That's what we saw last week. Now in verse 15, Moses makes his way down the mountain, and he hears with his own ears and sees with his own eyes what has become of Israel. He sees with his own eyes the faithlessness and sinfulness of Israel. And while there are many different things that we can probably draw out from our passage this morning, I want to point your attention to how these verses instruct us about how we are to respond to sin. How we are to respond to sin. And what we encounter are three musts. Three musts when we respond to sin. First, when, when it comes to sin, you must beware your sin. You must beware your sin. In verse 15, Moses makes his way down the mountain with tablets in his hands. Probably not too large, small enough that it would fit into the Ark of the Covenant. And in verse 17, he meets Joshua halfway down the mountain, most likely. And Joshua is just a standing reminder to us that it's not too long to wait 40 days for Moses because he was able to do it. He was waiting 40 days. And while, these two, while the two of them, Moses and Joshua, head down the mountain, Joshua hears this sound coming down at the camp. He makes it, mistakes it, for the sound of battle. Now, you remember who Joshua was? Joshua was the military commander for Israel. So he's accustomed to the sounds of war. Uh, back in Exodus uh, 17, he was leading Israel into battle. So he would be familiar with the sounds of furious fighting or chanting or war cries or screaming, shouts of fury or shouts of victory. But Moses knows better. Moses knows that's not the sound that they're hearing because God's given him a heads up already. But he says this in verse 18. It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. 
Now, you would think that singing would be something good, but this is the sound of sinful singing. The last song we heard in Exodus, do you remember where it was? It was the song of Moses in Exodus 15 when God has delivered them out of the Red Sea. They sing a song proclaiming that the Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. Maybe not unlike the psalm that we were just singing in Psalm 96, praising the Lord for his greatness. But now the Israelites are literally singing a different tune. It is the sound of carousing, sensuality, perhaps a mixture of sounds like drunken singing, wild dancing, men screaming, shouting as they chased women, and women screaming as they were being chased. Perhaps it's not unlike the sounds coming out of a rocking and rolling frat house. Exodus 15, there was a song. Miriam and the women danced. They had tambourines in hand as they were dancing. Now the people were dancing and singing for a cow. And it can happen that quickly. And we might think these Israelites as stupid, senseless, that they could have done something and have committed treachery so quickly. And I remember in seminary, I had a professor uh, who was the head of pastoral ministries, and he always had these stories for us all the time about pastors failing in ministry. And he would say, gentlemen, don't be a fool. Now, he would say things like that. Don't fall for the killer G's, is what he would say. Glory, gold, and girls. This is just the kind of professor he was. But that was the counsel in seminary. You think you're pretty hot stuff because you learned all these things, you've had all these encounters, but you ought to trust the Lord and fear your own heart. Don't think this cannot happen to you because the same heart that led those other pastors to sin is still at war within you. Church, this is why Jude tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. This is why Jesus tells us to pray daily, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because every day we need new mercies from the Lord because we are prone to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This isn't to say that a Christian isn't completely changed when he comes to faith in Christ. This isn't to say that Christians upon salvation don't have their heart of stone removed and God gives them the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, there should be many areas in your life where once you were prone to wander, but now you are prone to obey because the power of sin is broken. But we still pray, God, bind my heart like a feather. Take my heart and seal it. Why do we pray this? Because there is still remaining and of remaining indwelling sin. Because there are still outlying pockets of resistance in our hearts. And if we're not aware of that, and if we're not always praying, Lord, keep me, deliver me from these temptations, 
then it will be only, we can only imagine that we would be just like these Israelites that are really quick to turn upon God. Because at one moment they were singing and dancing and praising Yahweh, and the next moment they were doing the same thing before a golden calf. What's more, you should pay attention to the fact that the scene Moses encounters is one of misplaced happiness. The people are singing, it says. The people are dancing, it says, in verse 19. They're happy. You see, sin doesn't normally make us miserable in the moment. If it did, we probably wouldn't do it. The temptation the devil brings to you isn't, well, I've got a sin for you, and guess what? It's going to be agonizingly painful from the very moment that you start, start it. You're going to feel awful through the whole thing. No, that's not the promise that he gives to you. What is the promise, the false promise that he gives to you? He just says to you, God is keeping something from you. You're going to miss out. If you, you know, you should pursue that relationship. You should go after this guy or this girl, even though there may not be a Christian. You should, you should click on that. Participate in that gossip because you'll get morsels of delight. So make no mistake, we can be wondrously happy in the midst of our sin. And that's why we realize that we are not very good judges of what is right and wrong. The Lord does give us a conscience, but our conscience can be seared. It can be not according to God's word. How often do you hear people say, why would God give me this desire if he didn't want me to act upon it? Or, if you keep this from me, if you tell me not to do this, you're keeping me from being happy. Well, all that presumes that all the desires of your heart are God's desires. It presumes that all the things that I might want to do in my flesh is what God wants me to do, but we are fallen human beings, prone to wander. We are fallen human beings that are wicked, hearts are desperately sick, and we can have many joys, and it can still be sin. So beware your sin. Second, when responding to sin, you must kill your sin. When Moses came down and saw the camp, he was not a happy camper. Verse 19 says that Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets down and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now, at first, it seems like Moses is being a little childish here. You know, he got worked up. He's really angry. And in a fit of rage, he threw down those tablets and broke them. But Moses' anger isn't hasty or impulsive. There are at least two indications that Moses' anger was a righteous one. One is the simple fact that God does not rebuke him for his anger. He never chastises him for this, never disciplines him for this. On another occasion, do you remember, God did rebuke Moses for his anger. When he was leading the people of Israel and they wanted water, and he was so frustrated that he took 
in his anger, his staff, and struck the rock in anger. And God did discipline him. He said, you're not going into the promised land. But here in Exodus, there's no rebuke from the Lord. And this is confirmed secondly because in verse 19, it says Moses' anger burned hot. And that's the same language that is used for God back in verse 10, where God's anger burned hot. And the Hebrew draws a linguistic connection between God and Moses. So this is one of those rare occasions where we do have an example before us of righteous anger. And Moses responds to the sin of the people in two ways. First, Moses throws down the tablets, perhaps the most valuable things that Israel possessed at that time. He throws them down and breaks them. Early in verse 16, it says about these tablets that they are written by the hand of God. It is the writing of God on these tablets. And we know from Exodus 34 that on these two tablets were written the Ten Commandments, the foundation of all civil and ceremonial laws in Israel. And Moses smashes them, not out of anger, but as a symbolic act. Uh, we might be familiar with the prophet Zechariah, where he took a staff called favor and union, and he broke it as a sign, telling the people, symbolic, telling them, you have broken covenant with God. And remember back in chapter 24, where Moses reads the law to the people, and they confirm the covenant they say, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. And where were they at that moment? It says in chapter 24, they were at the foot of the mountain. So what is Moses doing here? He takes those very laws that they confirmed that they would do, and he smashes them at the foot of the mountain, at the very place where they had come into covenant with God as a way of saying, you've broken it. You've ruined it. but he didn't do just that. In verse 20, it says he took the golden calf and he burned it, pulverized it, liquefied it, and poured it into the people's water supply so that they drank it. Now, why did he do this? You know, you might be thinking, maybe Moses is like one of those parents, you know, where the, the child says, oh, I want that, I want that, and, the, and you know, one of those parents are, so upset, they say, oh, you really want it? You want it? Well, here, you can have it. You can eat it, you know, like that type of thing. I don't think that's what's happening with Moses. I think, again, he's doing something symbolic here. What's he doing? He's telling them, you see that God you thought was all that, that brought you out of Egypt? You know that God? Guess what? I just hacked it into pieces. I took all the wood pieces. I burned it. And then I pulverized it. I took all the ash. I, sh I shredded it. I, I I destroyed, I took all that gold, I liquefied, I threw it into your water supply, and guess what? It's in your belly right now. You just drank your God. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to defecate that God. It's going to come right out of your body. Some God that you were trying to worship. But the important thing that we see here is that Moses gets rid of the idol once and for all. 
To that end, Moses utterly and completely destroyed the golden calf because idols are not to be tolerated. They are to be annihilated. And too often we deal with the idols of, or, 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 the, or the sins in our lives. And we think we've cleaned up. But we really take those sins in our lives and we put them into the closet rather than taking them out into the trash. And we think we've cleaned up around the house, around, spiritually speaking. But we're just a, an open door away from that sin coming back into our lives. Moses never gave the Israelites a chance to go back to the golden calf, and you must do the same. You must kill it. You must hack it to pieces. You must pulverize it. You cannot be merciful toward your sin, or it will turn and devour you, because Colossians 3.5 tells us you must put to death, you must kill it, you must mortify your sin, because sins have a way of always escaping slaughter and turning back upon you and reviving so we must crush it, sap it of its strength, root it out, and deprive it of its influence. And how do we do this? How do we kill sin? Do we just muster up enough strength? We don't kill sin because, oh, you've got that dog in you. You're going to kill that sin. That's not how you kill sin. No, you kill sin because you've got that spirit in you, the Holy Spirit of God, by which God gives you that you might mortify and kill your sins because you don't live in the flesh but live in the spirit. Paul writes in Romans 8 that you put to death the deeds of the body by life in the spirit. There is something that God gives to every single Christian. Every single Christian that has turned and trusted Jesus Christ, they have given, God has given them the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit that enables you to abstain. It is the spirit that makes no provision for the flesh. It is the spirit that on that Monday morning, when you open up your Bibles, or maybe that when you, you're opening up your Bible in the devotional on a Monday morning and you're reading that passage and all of a sudden that word just leaps out. And all of a sudden Christ seems beautiful in that moment. And you love Jesus and your affections are raised. The Spirit is doing that. That it leaves no room for the flesh. So when we encounter sin, we must not dabble in it. We must destroy it. Third, in response to sin, we must first beware of sin. We must second kill our sin. And last, when we encounter sin, we must be willing to confess our sins. We must confess our sins. This is what we learn when Moses turns his attention to Aaron in verses 21 through 24. When it comes to Israel and the golden calf, there was one man who had to take responsibility. One man, more than anybody else, who had to take responsibility for what happened. And it was Aaron. Because when Moses departed up the mountain, Aaron was left in charge of the people to shepherd them while Moses was absent. And Moses, you notice in verse 21, does not mince words with Aaron. He says, you have brought such a great sin upon them. And that word great sin almost always refers to adultery in the Old Testament. Great sin. That's what they were doing. 
But he also gives Aaron a chance to explain himself. He says, what did this people do to you? Moses here, doesn't he almost seem sympathetic to Aaron? He says, what did the people do to you? What, what, what did they do? And he's, he's almost gentle in the way that he approaches Aaron. He knows what Aaron was up against. He, he, he understands that what the people of Israel are like. So he assumes they have done something awful to threaten him. And confronted by Moses, Aaron had this opportunity to make a full confession. But Aaron, safe to say, doesn't acquit himself very well. Instead of admitting his faults, he tries to pass the buck, and he blame shifts. Do you see how he blames, blame shifts in three different ways? First, he blames other people. Moses, you know what the people are like. Their hearts are set on evil. If you read between the lines, Aaron is saying, what kind of choice did I have? Yeah, you know, some bad stuff happened. But you know these people, you know what they're like. And just like Adam in the garden, who when confronted by God blames Eve, here Aaron blames Israel. Nothing changes. Are you like this? Are you always blaming somebody else, someone else? This isn't to say that upbringing doesn't matter and that other people don't have an influence in your life. Of course they do. But are you always ready to shift the blame to someone else and say, oh, you don't know what my parents were like, but you don't know what my kids are like. You don't know what my pastor is like. You don't know what my husband is like. If my wife wasn't always so angry, maybe I wouldn't ignore her. And it's always somebody else. When confronted with sin, you're just like Aaron, and you say, but you know what those people are like. Second, Aaron blames the messenger. This is common, isn't it? Verse 23. But they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of, the land of, Egypt, out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Here he's making a jab at Moses. He's saying, what was I going to do, Moses? You were gone so long. 40 days. You know, 40 days is a long time. I mean, the people needed something, and I had to help them. I gave them something. I mean, you had tablets up there. Why didn't you text? You were gone for 40 days. What did you expect? More often than not, when you confront people about their sin, they will redirect the conversation about your sin. Have you ever gotten into an argument with somebody? And all of a sudden, when you are being accused of something or being, being confronted with your sin, all the receipts come out. You remember everything that they've done all of a sudden. And you can start listing them and you can start saying, what about this? What about when you did this? All of a sudden, it's about something you did that made their behavior unavoidable or excusable. And finally, Aaron blames his circumstances. You kind of have to, you'd almost laugh at what Aaron has to say if it wasn't just so tragic. He says, I, I just, you know, I asked them, give me some gold and I threw it in the fire and... How came this calf? I just, I don't know what happened. 
this is crazy. You know, and then one thing led to another. I don't know. You know, there's some dancing and some singing. And then all of a sudden, this is what you see, Moses. Notice that in all of Aaron's excuses, he doesn't lie. The people are evil. Moses was gone. He almost quotes the people and what they asked of him word for word. But he downplays his involvement at all. We know what happened. We know earlier in verse 4, we know earlier that Aaron fashioned this calf. Aaron was the one that called out to the people of Israel and said, these are your gods, Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. We're going to hold a feast to it. We already know how invested he was. So what's Aaron's excuse? He blames the furnace. He says the fire did it. And he does what we do when we're caught in sin. He turns himself into a minor character when he was actually one of the chief actors. When there's great success or triumph, we're so ready to take on the accolades, aren't we? Like in a humble way, usually, you know, trying to say, oh, yeah, you know, my marriage is so great. I know, you know, I've been really good at those date nights. I've been doing, you know, I know. But, you know, like, you know, it's you know, all glory to God, all glory to God. You know, we might say something like that. No applause necessary. But when it comes to sin you're involved with, you're always the minor character, the small character. Yeah, I was there, but I was just kind of minding my own business, and just stuff happened, and then we got into a fight. It wasn't me. Aaron uses all the excuses that we use. He said, not my fault. I had no choice. It just happened. Have you ever heard those things coming out of your mouth? It's, it's my circumstances. It's the injustices that I've faced. It's the government. Somebody might say, when I was young, my parents divorced. When I was in college, I got in a bad relationship. When I was in business, I was surrounded by a horrible corporate culture. When I got married, I didn't know she'd be like this. When I went to church, the people were like this. When I was rich, men flattered me. It is the same old excuse. I got this gold, I threw it in, and out came this calf. In our day and age, we have removed human agency to such, an to such an extent that we don't think we make real choices anymore, that we're just the product of our environment. Our life is not that way, though. Our life is not just determined whether you're male or female, or whether you're black or white, or rich or poor. All of those things matter. All of those things have a shaping influence, for sure. But we actually have human agency. We make decisions. We are accountable and we are responsible. And one of the most difficult, painful, and rare things in the world is for someone to actually admit their fault and repent of their sins. The Puritans said that repentance is like the vomit of the soul, a holy agony. Why? Because true repentance understands the weight of sinning against God and against other people. Nobody likes to vomit. It's painful. Everything in your body says things should be going the other way. But that's true repentance. 
real confessions say, I did it. And Aaron should have said, you're right, Moses. These people might have pressured me, but it doesn't matter what they did to me. I led them into sin. I took their gold. I fashioned it. I called out, we're going to have a feast to this Yahweh golden calf. Forgive me. God, forgive me. But that's painful. And we're all masters at defending ourselves. And so, church, when we respond to sin, we must not only beware our sin and kill our sin, we must confess our sins. Now, if you're a Christian, you might be asking yourself, why is confession necessary? Perhaps you're thinking the gospel is that God paid for our redemption. On the cross, Jesus paid for the forgiveness of every sin, past, present, future. Our eternal standing before God as adopted children, all that is purchased once for all at the cross. So why do I need to make a confession? And you're right. Your theology is good. I'm glad you've been going to Sunday school because it is finished. God made us alive together with Christ. He's forgiven all our trespasses. He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. And the thief on the cross did not have an opportunity to confess all his sins. But he is with Christ in paradise. And so you're right to ask, why do I need to confess my sins? The Bible teaches that there are traits that God's people exhibit to show that they are in fact God's people and truly belong to Christ. And one of those traits, the family trait of those who are in the family of God, is how they deal with ongoing sin in their lives, specifically confession. 1 John 1.8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So confessing our sin is an agreement with God that we have remaining sin, and it must be fought, and that it must be killed. And we don't confess this truth, and if we don't do that, we're living, John says, in an illusion. So confession of sin is not the basis of our forgiveness, but one of the traits that show that we are truly in Christ. Church, may we be a church that's always ready to confront our sins and to kill it and to confess it, humble enough to confess. If you're here this morning and not a Christian, I hope that this morning's sermon, what I've said earlier, changes your thinking about Christians and Christianity. Christians don't think they are better than anybody else. They don't claim to be perfect. They acknowledge their frailty because we sin. We also fight, but most importantly, we confess. Sin is the great leveler, and all of us are sinners. And to deny that, to deny our wretchedness, is to imply that humans 
humanity's current condition is as good as it gets. And that is truly a wretched thought. But the good news is that Jesus did not come to save the righteous. He does not come to save those who have it all together. Jesus said, I came to save the lost. The good news is that the free gift of eternal life is for sinners who confess their sins, admitting they are unrighteous before God. And that is my plea to you today, this morning, that this day would be the day of your salvation, that this day would be the day that you would acknowledge before God who you are and who he is and turn and trust in him. Trust in the finished work of Christ that you may be set free from sin and make war against any indwelling and remaining sin. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks uh, for the examples that you give to us in Scripture. We thank you for positive examples and negative examples. But most importantly, we plead that you would change us as a church. That we would be ready to confront and fight our own sins. To kill them, to kill it, and to have the humility to confess it, to admit when we're wrong. Oh, Father, we pray that you would make us a humble people, conform to your word, conform to your will. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.